Lovely. As Lee said, this um, this passage in these chapters, uh, Matthew chapter five, six, and seven, uh, known as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, are incredible chapters. I don't think you can study them too much. Um, and if you read these chapters every day for the next year, the next two years, um, I think you'd find it would turn your world upside down. It would change your life incredibly. These these chapters are the longest recorded dialogue from Jesus. Um, and to his listeners they also were revolutionary uh, and changed their perception of um, what Jesus was about. So if you bring up the passage, Steve, we've already read uh, from Matthew chapter 5. I want to read a related passage um, that deals with the Pharisees. Of course the Pharisees are the religious power brokers of the day. They're the leaders of the people in terms of their spirituality and their, their religion. The Pharisees know the Bible well and the teachers of the law. Uh, These men are very well versed in the the Old Testament law uh, and they tell the people how to interpret it, how to to follow it, um, etc. But in Matthew chapter 23, which is uh, where I want to read uh, for you now, you can just listen or you can follow along. Jesus confronts uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law uh, in what I believe is the most angry um, words to come from Jesus' mouth. We're, we're familiar when Jesus creates a whip uh, and drives people from the temple in anger but I believe this passage in Matthew 23, uh, Jesus is even angrier. So I'll try and put on my angry Jesus voice but I think this passage will um, really help us in terms of understanding uh, our passage today. So from Matthew 23 we read from verse 1 Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. If I go down to verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across the sea and land to make a single convert and when he becomes a convert to Judaism you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate 
but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also appear outwardly righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, and Jesus goes on to say that these people will be responsible for the blood of all the righteous who have been killed. This passage, um, before I move back to our passage, um, I just want to make a few comments on it. You won't find stronger language than this from Jesus. Uh, And I think it paints quite a clear picture of the religious leaders of the day, how their response to law was, what their response to righteousness was. And so uh, you see they have a very misguided view of righteousness where it's all about these externalities where they pursue them doggedly to the last letter but the inner transformation, the heart, the very core of the law isn't there. And it goes a long way to explaining our reference to why Jesus says if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the Pharisees you'll never enter heaven. But verse 23 should sound immediately familiar to us. Uh, Of course it's Micah 5.8. What does the law require of us? Uh, Justice, mercy and faithfulness. And here Jesus says that is the core of the law that the Pharisees have missed completely. They've just missed it. Uh, And also I think from this passage verse 25 and 28 just highlight how easily and how readily we as people can be deceived uh, about our true heart condition, about how God actually sees us. What is our true spiritual condition and how God actually sees us. So I want to devote some time, if we can jump to the next slide Steve this morning, to to thinking about the law. Obviously to Jesus' listeners the Old Testament law uh, was their bread and butter. It was very familiar uh, to some of us it will be um, quite familiar as well, the Old Testament. Um, but I think for many of us um, we possibly don't know the law as well as, as Jesus' listeners do. But the law can teach us a lot about God's character, can teach us a lot, of, a lot about what God requires of us in obedience. Uh, and I suspect that the Old Testament law is also a source of confusion to some of us, uh, wondering do I obey that, do I not obey that? Uh, and so we tend to avoid books like Leviticus and, and Numbers and Deuteronomy, uh, put them in the too hard basket or I don't really understand that basket uh, but I want to spend some time looking at, looking at the law. So if we think about the purposes of the law um, and this is not an exhaustive list but it's just some of the, the key purposes of the law. Uh, when God gave the law uh, it was just to distinguish God's people uh, and be a witness of their righteousness to the, to the nations around them. Um, and we see that in Deuteronomy 4.8. We also see that the law restrains evil. So the, the Jewish law, the Old Testament, had some very severe punishments. It had stoning. Um, it also had, you could be excommunicated completely from um, the Jewish people by 
um, disobeying some of the laws in it. Uh, and of course in the New Testament this theme is picked up in Romans 13 where um, God says it's, it's not for no reason that the government um, has a sword to punish uh, and, it, and it's useful to, to stop wrongdoers, to stop um, people doing the wrong thing. And, and the law also acts to show us our sin and an, our need for a saviour. So in the law... Uh, we see this mirror. As we, as we look at the law, we see God's holiness and his requirements and it mirrors back to us our failure to keep the, God's law. It mirrors back to us our wickedness uh, and our rebellion against God. And so the law acts as a mirror for us. Uh, and then finally I've got there that the law reveals uh, the essence of who God is uh, and his requirements. So, for example, idolatry is a problem, not just because it says don't commit idolatry, but it says God is jealous and he deserves our worship and hence he doesn't uh, accept us worshipping things he's created. So it comes, it's rooted out of uh, who God is and his character. <coughs> so if we look at those broad purposes of the law, if we jump on the next slide, we see just a brief summary. There's 613 or so laws in the Old Testament. Garth, I'm sure you've memorised them. Absolutely. But this is a, a list of some of the, the broad categories and I'm not going to go into this in detail. But these laws are incredibly comprehensive. Um, so comprehensive that you can run a nation, run a country uh, by these laws, which of, of course the Jewish nation was built on these laws. This is how they conducted themselves when they were at war. This is how they appointed kings. This is what the kings were supposed to do. Uh, this is civic law, property law, um, don't move boundary stones, there's negligence in there, um, there's responsibilities to care for the poor and vulnerable. The law is incredibly comprehensive. Um, but if we jump to the next slide, these categories don't come from the Bible as such, but they're categories when we look at the law, um, it helps us as Christians to know how to respond to it. Um, so for example I notice um, Chris in particular is wearing clothes made of two kinds of fabrics uh, which is a violation of the Old Testament law but if we look at <laughs> and so Jesus <laughs> sorry I am as well um, Jesus, Jesus here says in this passage today um, if, you, if you teach anyone to disobey the least of these commandments you'll be least in the kingdom of heaven and if anyone teaches these commandments and teaches others to do these commandments you'll be great in the kingdom of heaven so what is he talking about these commandments are we talking about the 613 Old Testament commandments I don't think we are Um, and so this division of the law again it's not biblical but it helps us to um, categorise the law in a way that we can understand it. So when we talk about the moral law of God, we're talking about those absolutes that Graham referred to. We're talking about right and wrong from the dawn of time, this is what God requires. And he requires these moral laws of you right now as a Christian, um, that you obey these. So things such as um, idolatry. There's never a time when when you can worship an idol and it can be okay. there's never a time when you commit, commit adultery and it's okay. Um, but wearing cloths, wearing um, clothes of, the, of two different types of materials, that isn't part of God's moral law. It's part of his 
um, that you could probably lump it in the ceremonial category. Uh, but this, this law is about distinguishing God's people. Uh, and so sometimes these trip us up, you know, eating pork. Um, there's some pretty strange laws in the Old Testament, to our ears at least. Um, but they helped create an orderly society. Um, I can't worship at the temple in Jerusalem, A, because the temple's not there, uh, and, and B, because uh, the New Testament, the New Covenant, uh, has changed our relationship to the law. But so we have the moral law, the black and whites, the right and wrongs. Uh, these are timeless requirements of God. Even before the law was given, uh, these laws were in place. Stronger than gravity uh, and far more important. And then we have the ceremonial law. In general we can think of this as everything that was done at the temple or everything you need a priest for. So if you had, had leprosy, uh, you went and washed yourself, you went and presented yourself to the priest. Um, they obviously sacrificed animals as guilt offerings, as sin offerings. As Christians, uh, I haven't killed any animals for my sin and I'm glad. I'd be a very poor farmer because I'd be killing an animal probably every five minutes. Um, but this ceremonial law... Jesus completely satisfies. Jesus becomes our sacrifice uh, as Christians when we trust in him before God, he is the sacrifice for our sin. Uh, we don't kill animals because Jesus has died once for all sin. We don't go and wash ourselves um, in ceremonial ways and, and show ourselves to a priest because Jesus is our great high priest and he's washed us by his death on the cross so that we can actually have a clean conscience. The Old Testament, with its ceremonial laws, all pointed to Christ. They're all fulfilled in Christ. Uh, and the ceremonial laws were broken. God says that. He says if, if they weren't broken, uh, and this comes from Hebrews chapter 8, uh, verse 7 and verse 13, if they weren't broken, we wouldn't have looked for a new system because they couldn't cleanse the worshippers. They couldn't make them right with God. The sacrifices weren't enough. Killing an animal... Uh, can't pay for, for people's sin. And so Jesus comes and fulfills this ceremonial law by being the ultimate sacrifice for sin, by becoming the great high priest who always pleads for God on our behalf. Right now uh, he stands between us and God pleading for us and being our righteousness uh, if we've trusted in him. And then finally the civic or judicial law. Um, this is just another category uh, Obviously, when the Jewish nation went to war, they had to treat their prisoners of war in a certain way. They had to besiege a city in a certain way. Some of these laws, again, uh, are quite obviously not the ones Jesus is talking about when he says, if you teach others not to obey these commands, you'll be least in the kingdom. Uh, and so, if we look at all those categories of laws, um, we see that when Jesus says he... When, when Jesus says, I came to fulfil the law, not to remove it, that moral law is still in place. It's still binding on you, still binding on me um, to obey it. Uh, Jesus has obeyed the moral law in its entirety, not just the letters on a page, um, but Jesus never had a selfish thought. Uh, Jesus never failed to do something that God required. We fail daily. Um, we do the things we shouldn't do, we fail to do the things we should do. Jesus didn't. And so he completely fulfills the moral law and its intent. He goes beyond the text and says, 
um, you know, I have a pure heart because I've followed God and worshipped him completely as I should. And so uh, when we look at how Jesus fulfills the moral and ceremonial law, with the moral law he fulfills it by perfect obedience to God. Um, With ceremonial law he fulfills it by being the sacrifice that meets God's requirements. Uh, So for us as Christians, we don't keep the moral law to make ourselves right with God. We keep the moral law because it's pleasing to God and because it's what he expects of us. We do it out of love uh, for Jesus who, who, who became our righteousness. So Jesus met the law completely. He, he satisfied God's moral law. He never failed it. And because of that, he can be the perfect sacrifice for us. Ceremonially, Jesus stands in our place. He is our cleansing. Uh, he is the sacrifice for us. But it doesn't excuse us from keeping God's moral law. And so some people say, oh, the New Testament's all about God being love, it's all about grace, so we don't have to keep that law. It's kind of optional now. Uh, We don't have to keep God's moral law. But in fact, we do. We have to keep it in its entirety. And if you don't know the Old Testament well, um, you're going to be weak in your understanding of what God requires. Because the New Testament tells us a lot about it, but the whole New Testament is built on that foundation of Old Testament law. So studying Leviticus, essential. Um, If you want to be a full Christian and you've got to have a full diet. Uh, and so, how do we distill some of these laws? Apart from studying it in depth, and if you want to um, practice, Leviticus 19 is a great chapter for just having a, just for your own interest, having a look at that chapter and seeing what applies to me now as a Christian, what if this is moral law, what if it is law that is on a certain situation, etc., that no longer applies but is still instructive. But when we distill what the whole law is based upon and Jesus says this in Matthew 23, Micah says it in 5.8, we come back to love, justice, faithfulness and mercy. Um, It's not about the letter. So we jump to the next page and we see that Jesus here, this is just before um, Jesus launches into Matthew 23 uh, with his scathing criticism of the Pharisees. The Pharisees here are trying to trap Jesus, trying to trick him, um, trying to get him to dismiss some parts of the law as less important. And so an expert in the law tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so, jumping to the next page, we see the New Testament is rich with this message. You see the New Testament um, filled with the idea that at the, at the core of God's requirements for you um, and how you live in response to him is that you must have a transformed heart. So we read there uh, in Galatians 6.5 and Galatians uh, addresses this issue of law and grace um, probably the most of any book in the New Testament and it says it doesn't matter whether we've been circumcised or not. It doesn't matter whether we have been able to tick the box on every one of those Old Testament laws, 613 of them, 
What matters is that whether we have been transformed into a new creation, whether Christ has come into our heart through the Holy Spirit, through our acceptance of him and changed our heart from a cold heart towards God towards a heart that loves God. And that's what the core of the law is. And so we see elsewhere in Galatians, Paul says, serve one another humbly in love for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. Or in Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfil the law of Christ. So the law of Christ, we see, is a law of love. But does this mean that um, it's all about love and, and we counteract the moral law? So maybe God's laws about sexuality, the moral law that he reveals about sexuality, doesn't really matter anymore. Maybe it's just okay if we love each other. But that's a, a failure to understand uh, what the law of love is about. So Leviticus 17, uh, almost the whole chapter is devoted to the sexual depravity of the nations um, that dwelt in the promised land before Israel comes in and it talks about a whole range of um, sexual problems they had. Uh, it does talk about sexuality, it talks about um, incest, it talks about ad- adultery. These issues of sexuality aren't counteracted by saying um, it's, a, it's okay to be sexual or immoral if we love each other. It doesn't work like that. God's moral law is absolute. Before the law was given, it held true. Uh, After Jesus came and fulfilled the law, it still holds true. Uh, And so we have to be very careful before we decide, oh, that's in the Old Testament. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to worry about that. Uh, So we have to look carefully um, at things like the Ten Commandments, but all these other laws as well. Um, Do Christians keep Sabbath? Uh, Should we eat food with blood in it? These are, these are issues that I don't have time to go into this morning um, uh, and the answer to both of those is no, we don't have to keep the Sabbath and yes, we can eat food with blood in it. That's what my understanding is. Uh, but the issue is that these Old Testament laws, uh, a good number of them, embody God's moral law and where they embody God's moral law, his absolute uh, standard of morality and what he expects of us, we need to be careful to obey those not because it's going to get us into heaven um, but because God wants us to live like that. It's good for us, it's good for our society but ultimately it's what God wants. Um, So I wonder this morning if we jump to the last slide um, where does this leave us? We've we've looked at Jesus, how he fulfilled the moral law, the ceremonial law. Uh, We see that he says don't think you just because I've come and I'm, I'm preaching a fairly revolutionary message that you can throw the, the law out as, a ba- as the, uh, the bathwater because it's actually got a baby in it. It's actually got this pure um, moral teaching that is above time, beyond time. It's the requirements of God and what he expects. So uh, don't think that I've come to destroy the law. I've come to fulfil it. Uh, and you need to live out God's moral law and you need to teach it to others as well. Uh, but he says, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom. And so the righteousness of the Pharisees, and we see this in the following verses of chapter 5, we see that Jesus says, look, this is what your teachers are telling you. Uh, just don't murder. They're just expressing the law, they're seeing it as an externality and they're saying, if you can tick this box, you're Okay. Jesus says, actually, it's what's, it's what's going on in your head, it's what's going on in your heart. 
Adultery, it's an obvious visible thing. Yeah, we can throw stones. Um, We feel good about ourselves. But men, have you lusted after a woman? Because if you have, you're already an adulterer. You've already failed to keep God's moral law and his hammer of judgement, his wrath, is coming your way uh, if you don't do something about it. And so Jesus here, uh, and in the following, the following verses of the chapter, um, blows their understanding of the law and possibly ours out of the water. He says it's not just about this legalistic ticking boxes. It's about heart transformation and seeing God's moral law and actually understanding the underlying uh, truth behind it. So it's not, a, it's, it's not about divorce, it's about where is your heart in that. It's not about coming to church, it's about what motivates you to come to church. What is your heart reason for coming to church? So if we look around in a congregation, we could look at someone and say, you know, I think they're a really godly person. Maybe they're even the most godly person in this, in this church. But it's a wrong way to think. God sees the heart. That person might be like a Pharisee. They might be full of hypocrisy and wickedness. They might be full of self-indulgence and greed. And we can't see that. You see, the Pharisees walked around with all the tassels on their garments. They looked the whole picture of, of righteousness, of, of being an upstanding moral citizen. But Jesus says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside. You're full of dead man's bones. And so the challenge for us uh, is to, to enact the, the moral law of God in our lives uh, and respond to it appropriately. But so... The first thing I want to say is from Romans 10.4 here uh, and this is a great, great verse. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes or Christ is the culmination of the law. He completes the law. He satisfies God's requirements so perfectly. He never failed one thing and so because of that he can be a sacrifice for your sin. He can stand before God and say, Rob's a dirty, rotten sinner and the list of uh, transgressions that he's committed is so long that I don't have enough paper for it. However, Jesus met every single requirement of God perfectly and he's standing in as, as Rob's cover here. So when I look down at Rob, I don't see Rob and his failures, I see Jesus and his perfection. And so if you're a Christian here today, you need to know that no amount of ticking law boxes is going to improve or change your relationship with God. The only thing that matters is if you have trusted in Jesus Christ and what he's done for you when he went to the cross and was brutally murdered, uh, not just because the people of the time didn't like him uh, and the Pharisees didn't like what he had to say in Matthew 23, but because God sent Jesus to the cross. God crushed Jesus with our sin and the punishment that we deserved so that when we accept him, um, we can be right with him. And so we read there, conversely, um, some of you here might not have trusted um, Jesus Christ. Some of you here um, might be thinking, she'll be right. Uh, Some of you may not have thought, what happens when I die? Um, but from a spiritual sense, we read here in John chapter 3, uh, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in your place, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, 
and the wrath of God, the anger of God remains on him. And so for, for some of you here, if you're in that position, if you haven't trusted Jesus, if you haven't uh, accepted him as the one who will stand between you and God's correct and his righteous anger against your sin, then you need to. I just plead with you that you make a decision. You can't afford to wait till tomorrow. You don't know if you'll make it home today. Uh, And it's not just about you. All the people in your life need to know this. They need to hear this. Um, So you need to respond to God appropriately uh, so that you can tell others uh, and help others find this truth about Jesus. And I just, I can't plead enough uh, the seriousness um, of, of that verse. And in James 2.10 we see that for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it all. So you, you might be here and you might be saying, well, I never murdered anyone. Uh, I never worshipped an idol or made one. Um, I never blasphemed against God. I did look lustfully at that woman once but at that point you become guilty of the whole law. The whole law stands against you and will condemn you to eternal punishment. It's the correct judgment. It's God's right in sending people to eternal punishment because he is so holy and our sin is so wicked. We can't understand that as much as he can uh, because we've never tasted his purity and perfection. But Jesus' passage, Jesus' words to us today uh, teach us that we need a righteousness that goes beyond ticking checkboxes. Yes, we need heart transformation in terms of keeping the moral law. Uh, we can't keep the whole moral law of God. Uh, but in Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. So he satisfies the law and he can provide his righteousness to you if you believe. So I challenge those who are Christians today to not be self-righteous like the Pharisees. Pharisees completely deceive. They think they're sitting at the top of God's food chain. They're actually sons of hell. You can't get any more deceived than that. Uh, And so I I really call for us as a community to serve one another humbly in love, uh, to love one another uh, and to really not place an emphasis on the externalities of, oh, that person seems to be living the right way, but to be place an emphasis on where are we at with our heart with God. Challenge people, challenge your friends uh, here at Monty. How are you going in your heart with God? Not how's your church attendance lately uh, or have you been reading your Bible and praying? How are you in your heart with God? Are you close to him? Are you paying attention to what he's telling you? Um, are you trusting in him to uh, be your righteousness? I just want to leave you with those thoughts and um, I want to pray for us as we uh, respond in our hearts to God. God, these words in Matthew 5 uh, and and 6 and 7, they're just so challenging. They're challenging to Jesus' audience. Uh, In some ways, turn their world upside down but they have the same potential for us, Father. Jesus is so absolute Uh, And your requirements, Father, in your moral law are so absolute. At the end of chapter 5, Jesus tells us, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Lord, 
We realise instantly this morning our failure to be perfect, our failure to keep your law. And God, we just praise and thank you that you sent Jesus Christ to fix this problem up. He died in our place, uh, those who believe in him, so that the burden of the law which crippled us and never empowered us to be right with you could be taken away. Jesus became a curse for us and took the full weight of the law and its requirements. He was perfect, Father. He never failed in anything. And so we trust him to stand in our place on the day of judgement when every person will be held to account for whether they have kept your law in all its fullness. Lord, we trust him to be able to stand on our behalf in a legal sense and with his shed blood at the cross in sacrifice for us to make us right, to make us perfect. And even now, Lord, we're covered with his perfection and we thank you. Heavenly Father, I also want to pray for those who either have been um, struggling in their walk with Christ and also for those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour, as their sacrifice for sin. Father, please, um, I plead with you to, by your spirit, work in their heart to, to challenge and to change them so that they can trust Jesus and cease uh, to trust in whatever else they're trusting right now, whether it's uh, their own righteousness, their own attempts to uh, be a good person, whether it's just not really caring or thinking about um, their spiritual destiny. God, I just really pray that uh, your spirit can, can teach and challenge us all with this word and that we won't have hearts like the Pharisees that were so nitpicky about the nth degree of the law on the paper but they missed the heart message. Jesus talks about the weighty matters of the law, mercy, faithfulness, humility. God help us to not, not lose the big picture and get so caught up on little itsy bitsy um, technicalities that we forget to love each other. So Lord, I just pray that you help us as a community to love and serve each other humbly. And so in so doing, to show the glory of your requirements, of your law, of your moral law, uh, in the way we respond to each other. Not because we're keeping the law to make ourselves right with you, but because we know the law is good. We know your requirements are what we need. Uh, so help us to keep them for the right reasons, with the right heart motivations. Uh, and not be focused on judging others or externalities. We pray all these things in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.